Let's turn in our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This We're is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church so podcast. To, to learn more, two. visit osefc.org. Before we get into this, would you join me in a word of prayer? God, we desperately need your help for a very tough topic this morning. As we face our own mortality, as we look at the way that each of our lives will end, I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, encourage and strengthen us. For those of us that you live inside, would you comfort and would you bring about true understanding? For those who hear my voice, but do not have a personal relationship with God. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate and enliven and quicken the hearts of the dead that they might live abundantly in Christ now and forever. This is a tough topic. And so we pray that, God, your truth would shine like light into darkness. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Before I read, starting at verse 12, I need to prepare you. Now, I've said for a couple of weeks, no one is going to read Ecclesiastes and label this book as chipper. But, having said that, in the first few messages, what we have in the middle part of chapter 2 is going to make what we've already covered seem just downright jovial. We're going in deep this morning, and so I've got to do a little prep. I've got to tell you exactly what I'm going to do. Otherwise, I fear we're just going to kind of get lost in this. So that's what I'm going to do for just a few minutes, is I'm going to tell you exactly what I hope you walk out of here, you tune off this morning, turn off your computer this morning, having heard, and then I'll tell you. So what we're going to do in the middle of Ecclesiastes 2 is a continuation of what we read last week. In the first part of chapter 2, the preacher, that's the name of the author of this book, it's believed to be Solomon, the son, king after David in Israel, he was a man who ruled at the height of the power and influence and wealth of the nation of Israel. And he set out to figure out, kind of to go on a journey to find the meaning of life. And the way he told us that he was going to go about that was a kind of a systematic run through all the things that people usually try to satisfy themselves and satiate their desires with and to bring about you know, meaning and purpose for their lives. So last week, Pastor Tim did this really well for us. He just walked through six categories that, that Solomon sank himself into on purpose with the intention of finding out, is this really all there is? In the list that we're you know, looking at, this is 3,000 years old. But when you read it, you'll, you'll see that it's, it's really not old at all. It's literally the same big six that people are still going after today. When you learn a little bit about Solomon's life, you, you'll realize that he had virtually unlimited resources at his disposal. 
And so this means however he wanted to live, whatever he wanted to do, he could do it. And so he tried these things. The first thing he tried was pleasure. Just wanted to kind of, life is one big party. He lives in luxury. He lives in opulence. The preacher talks about laughter. Talking about laughter in this context is his way of saying he only wants to look at the fun things in life. He doesn't want to deal with anything hard. So he's just going to push everything hard away from him. He doesn't want to be depressed. Another way to say it is he doesn't even want to do anything substantially. He just wants everything to be light and breezy and airy all the time. Every day, every night should be greater than the one before it. So he tries pleasure. Next, it's drinking. Whatever else he can consume in his body. He's just going to substances, food, wine. We still do that today. Do you know that alcohol sales were at an all-time high throughout the pandemic, the last year of the pandemic? People are drinking unlike they ever have in the United States of America before. Third, he built. Have you ever seen somebody who has it in their mind that if they just had a bigger house, life would be better. Or we, we, just, we just need to put in a pool. We put in a pool, then we'll be a happy, fun family. Maybe if we just get a little lake place, maybe a little timeshare, maybe a place someplace warm that we can get away to in the winter. So Solomon built houses and gardens and fountains. After that, it was wealth. He gathered more and more and more until he couldn't even count it all. Fifth, he tried sex. And the last thing, it's kind of the totality of it all. He concentrated on how will I be known? How will I be remembered? And this is where it, it, it gets so real for the preacher. He's among the wealthiest people the world has ever seen. Not at the time, ever. He has power. Foreign kings and queens are envy him. Yet he realizes that all of those things aren't going to last. And it's probably not going to be very long before anyone even remembers that he's there at all. Look at where we ended last week. Chapter 2, verse 11. Look at it in your own Bible. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That word vanity, it comes up over and over again in Ecclesiastes. It can mean meaninglessness, meaningless. But even more poignantly than meaningless or vain, it can mean breath. In the same sense that it's barely anything like a breath, you don't realize you're breathing. You will never remember any of your breaths. And seconds after you've completed one breath, you need to breathe again. So that's Solomon's conclusion. All this stuff, it's like breathing. Don't even remember. It's, it's going to be gone. I'm just going to need to do it again. It's, it's so small and insignificant that I don't even notice I'm doing it most of the time. That's what he says. All that these things that he's tried kind of come down to. So Ecclesiastes is a series 
teachings about the true nature of life. And what we learn is that if you can't be honest about who you are and what you're doing, and then here's where we're going this morning. The last thing is who you are, what you're doing, and where life is headed. If you can't be honest about that, you're not going to be able to live very well. On the other hand, if you can and are able to embrace a sense of reality, of what it is that we're really doing here, you will find that you're able to truly live in a way that most people around you will never, never could. And this is what the preachers learned. He's conducted this grand experiment with everything at his disposal. And what he found was the more honest that we can be with who we are, the more truthful that we can be with what we're doing. And when we actually face where we're going, life does become sweeter and more real and there is actual abundance to it that you would never be able to find otherwise. So we're looking at the abundant life this morning. But in order to look at the abundant life, we're going to talk about death. Your death, my death. Not just death, like some people die, your death. And we're going to do that because if we don't, we won't really know how to live. Again, I'm not presenting any illusions that this is going to be easy. Saying that all of life is meaningless is like the happy version compared to where the preacher goes next. But the point in doing it this way is to open ourselves up to greater possibilities for understanding the life that we can have, we're given, but we'll never really take hold of it if we can't ever talk about death. Or we just always shove it aside. Or really, and this is what we're, we're most inclined to do, pretend like it's not going to happen. We can't pretend like it's not going to happen if we want to really know how to live before it does. So before I read this, here's just where I want to leave, here's what I want you to leave having heard this morning. The only way that you can truly live is by acknowledging that you will die. The only way that you can truly live comes through acknowledging that you will die. <clears throat> and so, having said that, we're going to build on that from Ecclesiastes 2, starting at verse 12. So let's read together the Word of God. I'll read, you listen, but follow along. It doesn't get any more profound and serious than this. Verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. This is what he's just done. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is all vanity. 
also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. So folks, this is God's word to us. So let's pay attention, let's learn. Here's what he's doing in verse 12. What can man do who comes after the king? Let me just kind of lay out what he's doing, try to reword it a little bit in my own language to walk us through this. So what can man do who comes after the king? Solomon is saying he's in the best position in the world that anybody will ever be in to test whether any of the things that he's been trying are the answer. He's rich, he's wise, he's secure, he's healthy. No one will ever be or have more in this world at their disposal. Nobody will ever be in a better position in this world to try these things. All anybody can do is if they're the luckiest person in the world is hope to match him. Nobody's ever going to exceed him. They're just going to maybe hope to match him. But in reality, most people, virtually all people who will ever live will have less. So Solomon basically says, I'm the best person in the world to do this. And it's not that Solomon isn't learning anything. And it's not that there isn't any value in his pursuits. Look at verse 13. There's a difference between living wisely and living foolishly. That's obvious. But wisdom isn't the ultimate answer. Remember, Solomon isn't just doling out a few tips for living well. Ecclesiastes isn't just a self-help book. Remember that, um, remember that philosophy a few years ago? It was about how clutter is ruining your life, you know, and so if you don't really love something, you should just throw it away. That got really popular for a while, so a bunch of people threw away all their stuff. But then it turned out that they needed a lot of that stuff, so they had to go out and buy it again. This is not just how to declutter your life. This is just not seven habits of the highly effective person. Solomon isn't after tips and life hacks. He's not a life coach. He's asking the biggest question of all. What does it mean to truly live? He's not just asking, how do I make it through the day? He's asking, what's the essence of every day? What's the essence of life? Verse 14 is the turn. Verse 14 is like the turn in, in, in all of Ecclesiastes. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. There's value in wisdom. And yet I perceived the same event happens to them all. You can be wise or you can be a fool, but you will still die. It has just occurred to him that his problem isn't with wisdom. Wisdom's fine. Wisdom's good. It's not dissatisfaction with any of the things that he's tried. It's not that they weren't fun. It's that no matter what he does, he will die. And that's true for me and for you. I think can help us understand a little bit of this. But before I do that, I just want to be careful not to move us past 
this point too quickly. I can lay out some things I think that are tremendously encouraging from this. But I don't want to do that just yet. And here's why. Read read verse 15 again. So he's lived wisely. If you go back and read the first part of chapter 2, he's indulging in all of these pleasures. But he's not doing that recklessly. He never put away his wisdom. Yet here in in verse 15, he's realizing that, that though he has everything he's ever wanted... Though he is abundantly wise, his life will end just like some other man who's lived in the exact opposite way, who has nothing and has been foolish, has been stupid his whole life. So let's not move past this just yet. The preacher wants us to sit with this. He wants us to sit here precisely because it's uncomfortable too. We don't want to do this. Death makes us uncomfortable. And the result of that is as often as possible, and in every way that is practical, we avoid death. We push it away. We reserve it for very specific times, maybe for things like funerals or, or visiting a gravesite. You know, even I do several funerals per year, every year, and even the idea of a funeral is becoming less and less popular. Sometimes people don't hold them. Other times they hold something, but they don't want to call it a funeral. They want to call it a celebration of life, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's not a bad title. But the famous philosopher Blaise Pascal concluded that this is why we fill our lives with so many things. Ultimately, And finally, we are trying to create enough noise, enough movement around us to drown out any thought of our own mortality. So Pascal basically says this. He says, we're thinking people. We're created in the image of God, and with with that comes a profound capacity to take in our lives and the world around us, unlike anything else that's been created. And because God has allowed us with a mind, has given us a mind, we can, even among all the created things in the world, conceptualize our own end. And that's unique to humanity. And so Pascal says that in worship to God, because he's given us this capability, because he's given us this capacity, we actually glorify him when we do that, when we contemplate our end, even when it's scary for us, even though it's uncertain, even though it, conf- it forces us to confront how little power, how little control we really have, when we avoid it, we do ultimately avoid it to our own detriment. And when we avoid it, we in some way defame God. When we refuse to acknowledge who we are in light of who he is. Who he is is everlasting. Who we are is mortal. Tim Keller says that we actually refuse to acknowledge our own mortality because deep down, unless God graciously but forcefully breaks in to convince us otherwise, we all want to believe that we're not going to die. Now, we, we, we might say, I mean, sure, I'll die. 
but we mean that in, in about the most abstract way possible. And the way we know that is we can talk about our own death for about 10 seconds And then anything beyond those 10 seconds begins to make us profoundly uncomfortable. And we look for any way out of that conversation, any thought to distract us, anything else to move us off of that reality. And that's what Pascal is saying. You'll acknowledge it as a concept. Sure, you'll die. But anytime you're forced to sit there, like I'm doing with you on purpose right now, I just want you to sit here with this. And by the way, if you wonder about it, I've been sitting here with this for a week. I'm doing this on purpose. If you're a little bit uncomfortable right now, what Pascal is saying, what Keller is saying, what Ecclesiastes is saying is absolutely true, and I'm proving it right in this moment. You will die, and so will I. And while that might seem normal, because everybody does it, It significantly stunts our growth and prevents us from truly living if we move past it too quickly. Just because everybody is uncomfortable with it doesn't mean we shouldn't learn and grow in it. What Solomon learns is that through everything he pursues, the true essence of life is found when we are willing to embrace life as it really is, not when we pretend that it's something else. And that includes acknowledging that it comes to an end. So now that we've sat here with it for a little while, I I think we're ready to see why it is that this preacher, remembering that this is him writing, but it is the word of God, why God would take us so low here. And the point in all this is not that we would be defeated or depressed. God has actually given us his word, and he does the very opposite in our lives. Through God, we, we have hope. We are assured victory, even over death. The Apostle Paul wrote that when we consider our own death, we should not be beaten down. Because through Jesus who gives life, we are, what Paul says, is more than conquerors. So now, when it comes to death, we are able to say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because death is swallowed up in victory. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and 55. As Christians, death has no sting, but it does, doesn't it? So what does the preacher mean? What does Paul mean? And at the end, we're going to talk about what Jesus means. Now, this is written, means, this was written a thousand years, what Paul wrote after what the preacher wrote. But even the preacher, a thousand years before Paul, a thousand years before the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, he begins to see it. And so I want to show you three things, one from each of these verses, that help us to have some idea of what this teacher has in mind. In the end, it says, so I hated life. That sounds about as bleak as you can get. But I don't think he means that we're supposed to hate life and sink into utter despair. I think he says, so I hated life, but he sang it as a contrast. He says he hates the kind of life that he had been living but there is another way and looking at our death actually opens us up to see that now that's a valid interpretation to think that he doesn't mean he hates his whole life and he will for every day after this one because if you read throughout the book he's going to say he wants to live he's going to say two or three times he's going to say he finds enjoyment in his life he's going to say that several times 
So what I think he's doing is making a strong differentiation between life that is consumed with the little, insignificant, temporary, worthless things that we may otherwise try to find to distract ourselves from looking at the true nature of life. But he's also going to say there's a hope if we learn to see life the way it really is, there is a way to live and to live abundantly. So one in each of the last three verses, 15, 16, and 17. Look at verse 15 again. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity, breath. Now there's an an aspect to this where you really can't change unless you're willing to see your need for it. That's sort of like personal growth 101. If you can't see your need for change, you're going to have an awfully difficult time growing at all. So you have a choice right now. I don't mean the collective we. I mean you listening to me right now as an individual. You have a choice right now. You might not have known, in fact, you probably didn't know that this is what you were signing up for this morning, but here you are. You've logged on. You're in the room. I'm telling you right so you can hear it that you're going to die. You can either keep doing exactly what I've said most people do, which is spend all of their time to try, trying to create excess busyness, make enough noise, fill up their calendar to the point that they don't have any quiet moments to think about that, Or you can accept that. And because it's real, ask how acknowledging that and living in light of the fact that you will die can change you and give you a greater understanding and a greater experience in life now. So no matter where you came in from or what you came in expecting to hear this morning, that's what I've told you. You, We've all been presented with an opportunity to hear this and either respond by doing what we're used to doing, which is by creating busyness and noise, or we can really enter into this. Now Solomon has said, no matter how wise, and you can substitute other things in here for wisdom too, no matter how in shape you are, no matter how much organic food you eat, no matter how much you accomplish, you will still end up here, death, much the same way as someone who doesn't do any of that. So again, this is, this, is the, this is the turn in Ecclesiastes right here. He's gone in, and now he's going to start going out. <clears throat> this has so much to teach us. But it, it can't teach you any of this if you're not willing to accept what the preacher is saying right, right now. So starting in just a little bit, light, light begins to break through. But the preacher has to take us all the way down before he can bring us back up, kind of build us back up the right way. So that's what he's doing. That's what, that's what verse 15 is. This is kind of the low point. 14 and 15 are kind of the low point. 16. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. More good news. Don't worry, you'll be forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Now, I asked this question the first week. But I want to get some real sense because this this is important. It'll prove my point. If you can name, just think about it for a second. If you can name your great, great grandparents, raise your hand. 
your great-great-grandparents. Let the record show, I see like four people in the room. There's probably 70-ish of us in here. Four of 70 can name their great-great-grandparents. I turn 40 this year. Later this year, I'll turn 40. If the averages bear out, and my great-great-grandchildren don't even know my name, great-great-great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandparents were born about 100 years before you were born, okay? About 100 years before you were born, your great-great-grandparents were born. I turned 40 this year. That means if the averages work themselves out, four of 70-ish, which is not very many, there will be people born in 60 years that I will have had a direct impact on them being in the world. They will be my direct descendants. They will be born in 60 years, and they won't even know my name. They won't know. I'm not, I didn't ask you if you could like, tell me all about what kind of work did they do, what kind of humor did they have, how tall were they. I, didn't, I just asked you for your name. In 60 years, there's going to be somebody born directly that I'm responsible for, and they won't even know my name. It's not a thousand years. It's not 300 years. This is 60 years from now. So is this meant to depress you, or is it meant to do something else? I think it's meant to do something else. And I think it's meant to do the kind of thing that gives us freedom that comes from realizing that we're not that big of a deal. And where we otherwise might pridefully pretend that we really matter so much, we can be liberated from feeling like we're it. That's what Solomon's trying to do. He's trying to liberate us from, feel, from you feeling like you, you're too big of a deal. Let me just say that another way. There's a sweet simplicity and contentment in life when you learn to lead, live each day just for itself, just here, just now, not constantly worried about what's going to happen in the future or how you're going to be remembered or what's going to come of your life. You will consume yourself with worry and pride if you're constantly thinking about what might happen or how you might be remembered. On the other hand, if you can just get comfortable with the fact that God has given you this life now, and you can live here and now, one day at a time, you will find a great serenity in that. And this is the kind of perspective that people don't usually develop until they are faced, really faced, with their own death. Not just an abstract idea of you're going to die, but when that becomes a likely possibility. So earlier I, I quoted Tim Keller, talking about how people are, are rarely able to admit that they themselves will die and kind of sit with that. Now that statement from Keller came in the context of him talking about his pancreatic cancer treatment. Uh, if you know a little bit about patriotic, uh, pa pancreatic cancer, you know that it's uh, one of the more difficult cancers to treat, and it's, it's among the most lethal. So Tim Keller was diagnosed about 18 months ago with pancreatic cancer, and he's doing better than probably what would be expected. But he's by no means in remission, and, and there's really no such thing for pancreatic cancer. It doesn't do that. You just sort of treat and you react. 
But what's come out of it for him is this appreciation, this renewed desire for two things. First, he more than ever in his 70s wants people to know about the goodness of God. And second, he is, according to him, finally learning for the first time in his life not to take things for granted. So Tim Keller, if you don't know his story, planted a church in Manhattan uh, when it wasn't cool to live in Manhattan. Uh, it's gotten a lot better. Crime, everything have gotten a lot better. He did this well over 30 years ago. Planted a church in Manhattan. It's a no- notoriously difficult spiritual environment to work in as well. And so uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church grew into a congregation of thousands where the average attender is young, highly educated, very successful, and transient. They move a lot. They're not connected to much. That's not a recipe for a thriving church. Young people, high-educated, high successful, transient people don't make for healthy churches usually. But out of that has come this church planning network, an international gospel ministry. Tim Keller's written a lot of books. But as he reflects back, even though he's been a pastor for 40-something years. So he, he talks about people, you know, matters of life and death people all the time. What he's found himself saying in that he, is that he wishes even he had a slightly different perspective on all of these years. He's been forced to slow down, rest. He's had a lot of time to think about his life and, and wonder what he's going to see in his last days. And, and what he's found is he's far more grateful even now than he's ever been. So I was listening to this interview with him, and he was saying how much, despite the cancer treatments, despite the uncertainty, despite even pain, treating cancer is is often very rough on somebody's physical body and their mind, he's genuinely enjoyed this time. He and his wife have, have enjoyed a close marriage, been partners in ministry, But he says their conversations have been more open and honest in the last year than they've ever been. He's lived in the same building in New York City for well over 30 years. But he'll often catch himself just gazing out his window and enjoying the view. Think about that. More than 30 years of looking at the same view. But now it's capturing him in a fresh way. He says it's the little things. He said his coffee just tastes better in the morning. He enjoys a a walk through a park. Even when it comes to his work and ministry, he wonders how many projects he has left. And so he's asking himself, "Is, is this really one of potentially the last few things he'll do? Now he's doing well. He could live for quite some time, but he just doesn't know. These are perspectives that people almost always only come to when they're either faced with a, with a terminal diagnosis or they reached an advanced age, well beyond the average life expectancy, which is like right around 70, little under 70 for a man, little over 70 for a woman. But do you see the freedom in this? Do you see how this actually, it might seem, well, isn't that awfully depressing to talk about your own death? But no, there's a freedom in this. There's a release in this. There's a peace in this. The preacher's point here is saying, 
<coughs> that the wise and the fool end up in the same place is not, not to say that there's no value in wisdom. It's not to say don't be wise. It's to say don't put too much hope in it. Don't put your belief in it. Don't make it the end all be all. And then he says, this is where he really gets just raw. So I hated life, verse 17. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. So I said earlier, when he says I, I hated life, I don't think he's saying just hate every day. Just go, go forth and hate. I think what he's saying is he's drawing a comparison. He's drawing a distinction. He's drawing a line between, I used to chase after all of these things. And I found that they didn't get me anywhere. And now I think he's saying, I found a piece. I found sort of the answer. I found the direction that I need to go. And so in comparison to what I'm doing now, I kind of hate all that stuff. The apostle Paul actually said something very similar. He said, I was surpassing everybody that I knew in every way. I was educated. I was elite. I was zealous. I was powerful. <coughs> I had all this influence. I was a rising star in Judaism. But now I consider everything else about my former life rubbish. It's actually a profane word in the Greek. I consider it all rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And he says, I'd give it all up again. Give it all up in a heartbeat just for the chance to gain Christ. Jesus Christ said in John 10.10, I came so that they may have life and have it abundantly. Well, what does he mean if in John 10.10 he says, I came that they might have abundant life, and Solomon says, I hated this former life. Well, what is abundant life if it's not what Solomon enjoyed, which was a life of absolute opulence? The preacher is saying, this is, I found abundant life. He's showing us the way. Life will never be complete if you're constantly striving after more. You will never feel settled. You will never feel at peace. But if you can learn to praise God, if you can learn to live, if you can learn to appreciate, if you can learn to rest and sit in the life that you've been given now, Again, a sweetness sets in to this very life. Oftentimes people think, to become a Christian, I have to give up certain things in the world. No, you don't. Not anything of value anyway. Give up. Give up what? Give up things that make you miserable? Give up things that make you feel like you're striving after breath, if you're striving after wind? Give up things that, have your life, that, that give, up, give your life no meaning or purpose or value or last at all or will even be remembered? No. To become a Christian is gain. You gain a true perspective on what life really is. Remember, Paul had it all. Solomon had it all. Solomon, Solomon, Solomon says, this is, I hate all this stuff. Paul said almost the very same thing. Give it all up to gain Christ. And folks, you gain Christ not just when you die. I have intentionally talked all for the last 30 minutes about life without mentioning almost anything of eternal life until now. And I did that on purpose. Because when you are in Christ, your best life isn't now. 
I understand that. I know that. That's the testimony of Scripture. When you are in Christ, you are promised life with God forever in heaven. But there is a way, isn't there, that we sort of discount this life if we're just constantly looking forward. I don't think when Jesus said, I came that they have might, that might have life and have it abundantly, I don't think what he meant was, but live in misery for the next 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and then have abundant life. I actually think he meant, you get life with me forever, but I think there's a pretty good life to be had now. I think that's what Jesus meant. And we sort of discount that when we only look at abundant life forever. So hear me say that. If you're worried, what about, what about my life forever in heaven? Yes, you get that. In Christ, that's yours. You get that. That's coming for you. Your best life is never going to be now. Your best life's always going to be then. That's what's coming for you. But that doesn't mean there isn't great joy, peace, and laughter, and happiness, and contentment, and all of those things to be had in this life now. And the way to take hold of that, the way to find that, is to say, I don't need all this other stuff. I just want to sit in this life now. And the preacher says the way we really start to do that is to say, I'm, I'm going to die someday. That's what actually brings us the perspective. If you just kind of, if you just kind of go on saying, I'm going to live forever. That's not coming for me. It's coming for everybody else I know. It's not me. You'll never be able to truly understand the nature of this life. That's what Solomon hopes to unlock for us by saying, whether you're wise, whether you live in abundance, whether you have nothing, whether you're, stu- whether you're stupid, whether you're foolish, you're going to die. And that's the key to understanding the true nature of life. And then Jesus comes along and he says, you're going to die. But when you die, if you're in me, you don't really have to die. You get to live forever and ever and ever. And so Jesus comes and he crushes death. And Jesus comes so that Paul can then write, after he rises again, death has no sting. Where's your victory, death? It's taunting death. Where's your victory? Where's your sting? You don't have any. Jesus took it. The grave, he conquered the grave. So Solomon begins to see this. The preacher begins to find this. But Christian, 2021 Christian, you know so much more than Solomon. You know all that Solomon knew, and you know all that Christ did for you. So when you wonder, what's the point of life? A couple things. Wrap this up and we'll take communion. What's the point of life? First, live it now and live it abundantly. Don't spend all your time wishing it was some other way. Another thing, realize that you're going to die. But when you do, Jesus has defeated death, and you will live forever with God in heaven. So this isn't all there is. But don't discount this. This can be pretty great. And finally, keep in perspective what's important. Even when you talk to other people, it can get so easy to just get sucked into these things, get sucked into the things of the world. Don't do that. Don't do that. We often, you talk to somebody who's just seasoned. Maybe they've suffered. They're older. You know, they're advanced in their age. And they have this perspective. And they go, oh, I wish I could have told myself this 30, 40, 50 years ago. 
by God's grace, we're being told it right now. So this is how we live. This is how we live, by having a realistic view of our lives. That's the true essence. That's the true meaning of life. Let's pray, and then we'll take communion together. God, I thank you for teaching us through your word that you are better than the things of this world, that even though we die, we live, and that because we die, we can really have life here. And so, God, I pray. It's a bold prayer, but it's one you promise. It's one you give us in your word. May we know a, a, a sweetness in this life, and may we have great hope in the life to come. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our life and is our hope. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.